All right, guys. Well, welcome to Salt Company. You can go ahead and wrap up those conversations and take a seat. Guys, I am so glad that you are here tonight. Uh, my name is Andrew Hager, and I'm on staff here with Salt Company. I lead the freshman ministry, which means a couple of things. I get to lead the best class in Salt Company, the freshmen. Where are we at? And the best D group in Salt Company. Sophomore boys, let's hear it. That's pretty good. They told me to give them a shout out that they would yell back, so that was the shout out. Um, awesome, well hey, uh, I just started working for Salt Company this year, um, but I've actually grown up in Cedar Falls my entire life, and I've been going to Candeo for six years now. And so I actually chose to go to UNI because I loved Salt Company, because I wanted to be a part of it here. Um, graduated from UNI and got hired on here as the junior high ministry leader. So that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years, and now I get the privilege to work with you guys, and it has been a joy. And so I'm really excited to open up God's Word with you guys. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Isaiah 44, and that's where we're going to be at tonight. Um, one of my favorite things about Salt Company is the fact that we care that the gospel doesn't just go out to you and I and the people here but actually that it would go to the ends of the earth, <laughs> that there would be worship gatherings like this one that teach the Bible and worship Jesus in every university city, like to the ends of the nations. And so what we do in kind of like normal years, non-COVID affected um, years, is we send summer teams full of students, just like you guys, small groups of students that go overseas to other universities and share the gospel. They build friendships um, and just really try to do a gospel work on that campus, which is really sweet. And I actually got the opportunity to be a part of one of those teams this summer after my sophomore year. So that's my team that we are in a mosque in downtown KL, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, you can go to the next picture. So yeah, you can leave it here just for a little bit. I wanna tell you guys just about a couple of people in this picture. Um, so we were working at one of the biggest universities in Malaysia. Um, so there was just tons of students everywhere. It was super busy. Everybody had a lot going on. And so we were just like desperately trying to find people that would actually give us the time to hang out and build relationships from them. And it was kind of going tough until we met these guys. And these guys, so the bottom left, his name is Gural. And then in the middle there in the red, that's Boshaga. And those two guys were actually running for class president, which is a pretty big deal given like the caliber of university we were at. And so in order just to get time around them and have opportunities to share the gospel, we told them we would help them with their campaign. And so all summer we were pulling late nights with them, like flyering, texting people, um, just building relationships. And we actually had the opportunity a couple of times to share the gospel with them. And you guys wanna hear something crazy? Boshaga there, he was one of our best friends. I haven't heard from him in a year. An hour ago, he just FaceTimed me to reach out telling me that he's now a transfer student at Purdue in Indiana, like studying uh, engineering. And he was actually having a rough transition. And so I had the ability to share the gospel with him once again, um, which is really sweet. So that's Buck Wild. Was not a a, like expecting that today. But anyway, uh, it was actually really hard for them to understand the gospel and to kind of get it um, because they had never heard the name of Jesus before. They had never heard anything that the Bible teaches. A couple of them just had no idea who he was, and they were actually practicing Hindus. And so in Malaysia, there's a couple of like major religions, uh, Islam, the Muslim faith, that's the number one, but Hinduism is actually really popular too. And so one of these days, uh, these guys actually took us to one of their places of worship called the Batu Caves, and I've got another picture of that. 
And so what the caves are is it's just this massive staircase with this huge golden statue. That's like 10, 12 stories tall. It takes like 30 minutes just to walk up all these stairs. And then in the caves, there's like these altars and these different like sections for different gods that they go and worship. And twice a year, they have this festival where they all bring sacrifices and offerings. And some people even hook massive iron and metal hooks in their backs and trudge up these stairs to try to prove to their gods that they are worthy, to try to please their gods by mutilating themselves. And we actually got to go there with our friends. And so we were up there in the caves, kind of milling around, looking at the other gods. And guys, it was honestly heartbreaking as there are women crying on their face, begging these gods to heal them of their sicknesses. As these other people are pulling out money from their wallets, their life savings, putting it, hoping that maybe these gods will answer their prayers. Maybe these gods will be there for them. And as sad and heartbreaking as it was, it was just kind of like, it was also just a little bit ridiculous. I mean, I looked over at one point and somebody was drinking like a can of Mountain Dew and they dropped it and it spilled all over the base of one of these idols. And I just got to thinking to myself, like your God can be taken out by a can of Mountain Dew. Like how ridiculous is that? That the thing you're putting your hope in for salvation can just be like washed away by like some sugar water. And there was another one that was actually under construction. It, some of the paint had chipped away, so they were refurbishing it and repainting it. And guys, how heartbreaking is that? To think that the thing that they put their hope and trust in for salvation, that the paint chips away, that it's a statue. How desolate and hopeless of a state they must have been in. But here's the thing. I think as 2020 has unfolded, I think a lot of us may have realized that we are in the exact, exact same place as these Malaysian idol worshipers. That some of the things that we have put our hope and trust in have actually been really threatened and taken away from us this year. Maybe it was a job or money. COVID has caused so much job loss. The unemployment rate is crazy right now. People are having trouble making ends meet and maybe you guys have experienced some of that. You trusted in your income and now it's just gone or maybe it was health. Yeah, I know COVID primarily affects a lot of people older than us, but there are people our age that have gotten the disease and died. We are not totally immune to this thing. Or maybe it's mental health. Maybe all the quarantining, all the isolating, all the social distancing has gotten to you in a way where you are walking through some serious anxiety and depression and your health has been taken away from you. Or maybe it's relationships, family members that have gotten sick, or family members that you're unable to see because of COVID and all those things. And this year has taken more and more things away from us. And I think that some of us, that as we've realized that things got taken away, that we have made little gods out of the things in our lives. Some of the things that you have taken in your life and put your hope and trust in are just gone and you are feeling as hopeless as you think those idol worshipers might be. Guys, bowing down to a statue is not the only way to have an idol in your life. And whether we know it or not, we all have things in our lives and in our hearts that we make idols out of. They're things that we treat like they are God, even though they are not. And that's exactly what our passage addresses tonight. It's talking about idolatry. Isaiah is talking to the Israelites, so he's talking to God's people in the Old Testament and to us about the idols of our hearts the things we worship and the things we trust other than God. And tonight he's gonna show us three things 
The first thing is he's going to show us how ridiculous it is to worship idols. How actually crazy it is that we would put our trust in things other than God. Secondly, he's gonna show us what the worship of idols does to us. What happens to us when we put our trust in idols? And lastly, he's going to show us how God alone is worthy of our worship. All right, so Isaiah 44, we're talking about idolatry, and the first point is this. It is ridiculous to worship idols. Look with me at Isaiah 44, verse six. It says, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord Armies, says. I am the first and the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me. Since I have established an ancient people, let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. Part of how ridiculous it is to worship idols is how amazing it is to worship our God. One of the reasons it's so incredibly ridiculous to worship the things of this world is because of how marvelous and amazing it is to worship the God of the Bible. Before God even jumps in and, begin address, and begins addressing idolatry, he just reminds the Israelites of who he is. He says, I am the only God. Other gods aren't just different from me. They are no gods at all. Make no mistake, the Bible is very clear. Our God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not one God among many that we chose to worship. He is the only God. Other gods are not just different. They are no gods at all. Only our God, the creator God, is the only rock that we can follow. And so this is the God that we worship, and to worship something else is crazy. But Isaiah isn't done yet. Look with me at verse 12. And while I read this next passage, just look at the irony of how ridiculous it is that they would worship some of the things they're worshiping. He says, the iron worker labors over the coals. He shapes the idols with hammers and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself, and he kindles a fire and bakes bread, and he even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in the fire and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the blaze. And he makes a God or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, save me for you are my God. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or the insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Should I make something detestable with the rest of it? Should I bow down to a block of wood? 
So this is ridiculous, right? Isaiah kind of has like a sarcastic, almost like a sassy tone. And when he's talking about it here, he's like, oh my gosh, look at all the effort that they take to craft this perfectly. They chisel it and they measure it and they mark it, they make it, they do all these things, all to make a God out of the very materials we use for everyday life. And however obvious it was to us that those things are useless as gods, that is literally what people were doing. They were taking wood from the same log, from the same log, no difference at all. They would cut it and some of it would go over here and they would make fire with it and they would burn it. And some of it, they would take over here and say, this is my God. This is who created me. That part, that's totally different. I'll cook my food over that, but this one, this one is my God. Guys, wouldn't you go crazy if you all came in here tonight and I told you that this was your God? We came here to Saul Company to worship, like here's your creator. Bow down to this wood, worship him as if he is your God. Pray to him for the salvation of your souls. You guys would think that is ridiculous, right? You'd probably laugh and never come back and you shouldn't because that is so outrageous to say something like this is a God, to bow down to something created as if it is God. But don't we do the exact same thing when we turn to the things in our life as gods? Bowing down to statues is not the only way to have an idol in your life. When we take things in our lives like money or relationships or careers or health or anything else and they become the single most important thing to us, our entire world revolves around them, we are bowing down to a block of wood. When we care about something so much more that it surpasses our level of love for the Lord, when it comes to the level where if that thing were to be taken away from you, life wouldn't be worth living, we are bowing down to a block of wood. Every one of us has idols in our life that we worship. Now, I know that there's probably not very many people in this room that bow down to idols that go home to your dorm rooms and you have your little gold figurine or whatever and pray to it at night. But if I had to guess, I bet there's a lot of people in this room who worship on the altar of things in your life, things like relationships. I wonder if some of you so desperately want to be in a relationship that it's all you can possibly think about that every room you walk into, every time you come to Salt Company, all you can see is the potential people for you to date, the potential people for you to be in a relationship with. Your time on social media is spent looking at profiles of people that you long to know and long to be loved by. And you believe that if you could just love or be loved by somebody, then, then you would be fulfilled. Then you would be happy. But how sad is that when in a room this size, there will be people who are single forever and to be chasing that would miss out on the joy and happiness of chasing a reality that you and I are not guaranteed. God doesn't promise relationships to any of us. And how ridiculous would it be to pursue something that we don't know if we could ever get? Or if you do get married, I love what one of our pastors, Jay Caring, said the other morning at Candeo Church. If you guys do get married, I hope you have incredibly healthy, fulfilling marriages. But even if you do, 
get married to the person of your dreams and you have a long and healthy marriage, one day one of you will die before the other. And if you have made a God out of that person, if that person is your world and that relationship has become your everything, you will be looking at your God dead in a casket. And where will your hope be then? It is crazy to put our hopes in relationships because every relationship, no matter how good, it always ends. Either in a breakup or in death, relationships are not forever. Maybe for other of you, it might might be health or beauty. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how much time you have, you always find time to get to the gym or to spend extra time getting ready in the mirror hoping that the way you look or how beautiful you are to other people will get you your longing for approval or significance. And you guys are hoping that your health and your beauty will make you significant and give you attention. But here's the thing, beauty and health and all of that stuff, it fades really quickly. All right, if we can just be real for a moment, when we get older, anything that makes us look beautiful, like body shape, muscles, all that, gravity wins, okay? When we get old, we get ugly, it happens. We get ugly, we get wrinkly, nobody's attractive at 87, all right? It's just, it's gonna go away. And if your entire life, in your 20s, and in your 30s, or whatever, has been spent pursuing your beauty, pursuing the way that you look, when you are old, you will be devastated that that is gone. Still, maybe for others, it's money. We laugh at the people in this story for like cutting down wood and putting some of it in the fire and some of it worshiping. But don't we do the same thing with money? We cut down trees, we send them to the paper mill. And from the same tree, some paper is made into newspaper that we use for kindling for fire. And still other paper is sent to a printing press, dyed green, a number is stamped on it and we spend the rest of our lives pursuing it as if it is that important. Same tree, same paper. Some goes in the fire, but some we will spend the rest of our lives pursuing to get. And isn't it crazy that old, when people are old and wealthy, their money is just sitting there and it doesn't go with them. They spent their whole lives chasing and accumulating a wealth that means nothing to them once they are gone. The list is endless of things we could idolize. Achievement is another one. I think this one for me Um, is actually really personal. If I think I tend to idolize something in my own life, achievement is what it is. Actually, in college, I became so obsessed with achievement and success through promotions I was taking at work, through the connection groups I was leading, through excellence in the classroom, through whatever it was, I just became obsessed with doing more, with being better, being the best, doing one more thing, staying up late, getting up early, that I constantly made myself sick with exhaustion. And I felt just the ridiculousness of pursuing achievement, pursuing success that was a totally futile effort because there was always somebody that was just a little bit better. There was always somebody that was just a little bit ahead of me. There was always one more thing on the to-do list to be done. There's one more thing to make me just a little bit better. And I'm telling you guys, to continue running that race is to chase something you will never achieve. And lastly, I think in a university context, a lot of us might idolize knowledge. How much you know or how smart you are. You love to accumulate knowledge. You love to compare how smart you are, how much you know to other people. And in reality, I think this is totally ridiculous. Because if we're being real here, 
I think each and every one of us only knows like one one millionth of a percent of all of the things there is to know. Like think about it for a second. Raise your hands. How many of you guys like music, listen to music or whatever? Yeah, okay. Name every song ever that has been written. Or name even just like the top 50 songs for the past five years. Like you just don't know that. It's impossible to know everyone. Or uh, do you guys, maybe you guys like to read. Maybe some of you are obsessed with school and books because you think if I can just master, if I can just know what's in these textbooks, that will give me significance. What if I told you to read every book ever written, ever, every word that has been transcribed? There is no way. Or maybe you guys really like sports. Name every sports statistic ever that has ever happened. Or even what is the record for the NFL teams in the last 50 years? Like no one knows it. There is so much knowledge in this world that we will never know. And if you spend your entire life chasing after knowledge and significance by the things you will know, you will have spent a lifetime knowing less than 1% of all there is to know and you will not have made a single dent in the knowledge that is out there. Guys, I realize that a lot of that stuff kind of seems ridiculous or outrageous or like it's not worth it. And I'm telling you, it's not, but we all do it. We take the good things that God gives us, like relationships, like intellect, like approval. Those things are good things. But when we make them ultimate things, when we make them the most important thing to us, we have made an idol. And I think how this manifests itself in a lot of us is that, a lot of people can look for G- to Jesus for salvation, but not for satisfaction. We trust Jesus with our salvation, but not our sac- satisfaction. We look to him to kind of like check the Christian box, the get out of hell free card. Yeah, I trust him to save me from my sins, but my satisfaction, my joy, the thing that's actually gonna make me happy, no way that can be Jesus. It has to be something over here. And we separate that. And I'm telling you guys, it was never meant to be that way. Our salvation and our satisfaction are not two separate things. They're one and the same. The idols of this world, the things that we look to to trust could never give us the satisfaction that is found in Christ and they leave us in an incredibly hopeless place. The worship of idols is the worship of things temporary. It's the worship of things that go away and it's a worship of things that won't satisfy Point number one, the worship of idols is ridiculous. Second question, what does the worship of idols do to us? When we do put our trust in them, when we do choose to trust things other than Jesus, what does the worship of idols do to us? Look with me at Isaiah 44, verse nine. It says, all who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes a god or casts a metal image that benefits no one? Look, all of its worshipers will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are humans. They will assemble and stand. They will all be startled and put to shame. This is incredibly strong language, all right? Three times Isaiah says that idol worshipers will be put to shame, what does the worship of idols do to us? It embarrasses us. It shames us. Not only do the idols have no value, they are an embarrassment to those who worship him, 
worship them. They should be ashamed of themselves for worshiping things and ascribing worth and value to things that do not have godlike qualities. What else? Look at 44.12. He says this, the iron worker labors over the coals. He shapes the idol with hammers and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. So sarcastically, Isaiah kind of makes a reference to the strong arm of the idol maker. He's like, look how strong he is. He is the one that makes his God. And he becomes weak and tired doing so. And it's the same thing with us. If we make idols, if we choose to worship the things, we are the ones that make our gods and we grow weak and tired. Second thing is idols exhaust us. Idols embarrass us and idols will demand things and exhaust from us. If the approval of others is the most important thing in your life, then you will obsess over every interaction, every conversation that you had somebody wondering, what did they think of me? Did I do good enough? How can I be better next time? I need to work harder to make sure that my image or other people's perception of me is good enough and you will become exhausted. Idols demand things from you. Idols are needy gods. You will spend the rest of your life serving them and trying to build them up and bolster them and they will continue to take and take and they will always want more. The idols in our life are never satisfied. They will demand and demand and take and take and you will have nothing to show for it. And lastly, look at verse 20. Isaiah 44, 20, it says this. He, the idol worshiper, feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray and he cannot rescue himself. Stuck in the middle of his idol worship, in the middle of looking to things of the earth to satisfy him, he cannot deliver himself. Idols overpromise and underdeliver every time. Idols always overpromise and they always underdeliver. Idols promise things like hope, comfort, and security, but in actuality, they deliver pain, doubt, and emptiness. So the election is coming up in a few weeks, right? And no matter who you're voting for, no matter where you land, there will be a tremendous amount of people who after the election results, after they see who win, will be ashamed and embarrassed that they fought so hard for a candidate that didn't win. They will be embarrassed that they were looking to a political party or political system to save them, to give them some sort of comfort or sense of significance, and it didn't come through. Whatever you idolize, it will let you down. It promises good things, but it will always under-deliver. They will always leave you exhausted, and they will always leave you needing more. And so if that's what it's like to worship the gods of this earth— if they leave us embarrassed, exhausted, and empty, that leaves one question. What is it like to worship Jesus? Is Jesus any better? Is Jesus any different than the things that we put our trust in here on earth? What is it like to worship Jesus? Look with me at Isaiah 44, 21 through 23. He says, remember these things, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I formed you. You are my servant, Israel, and you will never be forgotten by me. 
Men are the ones who form idols, but God is the one who forms man. See, any idol that we could create, any idol on this earth is by nature below our God because our God created the world. Our God is not like those other gods that had a beginning and were created. Our God is not like that. Look at what Acts 17, 24 through 25 says. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by human hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life and breath and all things. He is the creator God. Nothing exists here that he does not keep in play. If our God goes away, so does the world. Everything in our lives is beneath him. Man are the one that form idols, but God is the one that formed man, and our God doesn't need anything from us. He stands above anything created as the creator God. Look at, he goes on in 22, he says, I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Our God is not a needy God. The idols of this world, they will take and take and they will demand things from you, but our God is not like that. Our God is not a God who takes, but he is a God who gives. The idols of this world will demand things from us, but God fulfills his demands for us. The idols of the world will demand things from you. They, will, they are needy gods, but our God is the one who fulfills his own demands for worship for us. Our God is a God who gives, not a God who takes. And what are the demands of our God? How does he fulfill his own demands in our place? I think we get a hint in 1 Peter 1.16 when God tells his people, be holy because I am holy. That's God's demand to you. That's God's demand to me. That's God's demand to everybody is that you be holy. You be perfect. You be blameless. You never mess up. You need to be perfect and holy and set apart like I am. That is his demand to all of us. But before you guys start thinking about all the ways you need to try to be perfect, all the ways you need to try to clean yourself up to make it so you can be perfect, I'm gonna stop you right there because it's not possible. It is impossible to fulfill the demands of worship for our God. In fact, we all know none of us are perfect, that we have all fallen incredibly short of that. But here's the thing. God loves us way too much to leave us in that place. And though we can't fulfill the desires of his worship on our own, he sent his son Jesus to do it in our place. Jesus Christ came down and lived the perfect life that you and I never could. God demands that we be holy and Jesus fulfills that demand. And on the cross of Christ, Jesus takes away all of your sin and all of your shame and all of the things that make you not perfect. And look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, you have fulfilled God's command to be holy because Christ did it in your place. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you no longer need to earn your salvation because he did it for you. Jesus is our substitute. 
And so all of the things that we look for in this life, approval, security, comfort, all of the things that we look to idols for fulfilled are found only in the person and works of Jesus Christ. Salt Company, you can rest. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. You don't have to serve a needy God anymore. You don't have to be, bow down and be a slave to the gods of this earth when the God who created this earth has made a way for you to be perfect and holy and blameless. Guys, Jesus is the only savior that is worthy of our trust. Let's pray and then sing to him now. Jesus, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to come down and fulfill the demands of worship in our place. Jesus, I thank you that all of the desires of our heart for approval and comfort, that you don't let us settle for the things of this earth that can never satisfy, but rather you give yourself fully to us so that we can be satisfied in you. Father, I thank you that on the cross, you took away all of our guilt and all of our shame, and now in you, we have approval, we have security, we have comfort, and we don't have to look to the things of this earth to give us what only you can give us. Jesus, we love you, and pray this in your name. Amen.